Welcome to Kashmir in Yiddish with your host, Shloyma Devoila. And welcome to another episode of Kashmir in Yiddish. I'm your host, Shloyma Devoila. The purpose of this program is to introduce and familiarize you with the wonderful world of Yiddish. Today, we have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Jaime Axe. He is the son of Holocaust survivors and was born after World War II. His parents were originally from a small town in Poland, and during the war, they experienced terrible hardships in camps and ghettos throughout Europe. Jaime, thanks for being with us today. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, your family originally came from the town of Bodzanov, B-O-D-Z-A-N-O-W. Bodzanov, some people pronounce it, but my father used to, in Yiddish, it was Bodzanov. And uh, that town is about 40 kilometers outside of Warsaw. Well, tell me uh, about your parents' background. Well, my parents were very orthodox. They were both in heavily orthodox families. They lived in a little town where there were two shuls, both orthodox. Um, They observed all the holidays. They went to Cheder to learn uh, the the liturgy of Judaism, uh, the Torah, but they also went to Polish school because the Polish demanded that they go to public schools. And uh, so they did both. They spoke Yiddish mainly in the house that was their only language. I don't think that my grandparents could even speak Polish for very well, but my mother and father learned some Polish as part of their elementary education. And how big of a family did uh, your mom and your dad have? My dad had, uh, he had two brothers and three sisters. And my mother, she had two brothers and two sisters. And uh, one of the sisters, my mom's sisters died Two weeks before liberation, at the end of the war, she got uh, the Germans found her and uh, her siblings. My mother was the oldest of the group, and when they left the Warsaw ghetto, the my, the my grandparents said to her, "You take the kids and go out into the forest and you hide for as long as you can. There are some farmers there who may recognize you because." We did business with farmers when they used to sell dry goods off of a wagon and maybe they'll help you out and, you know, you just take care of the kids. So she was in charge of that and, you know, they did pretty well until uh, 1944 and then one of her brothers, my uncle, joined the uh, partisans and became a uh, uh, person trying to kill Germans, which was uh, very uh, heroic of him, and also also something that you know later on we he talked we talked about that when we were together. Uh, I was a kid, and he was you know my youngest uncle. Um, the toward the end of the war, when the Germans were running as the Americans and the Russians were coming into Poland, uh, the Germans stopped my mother, who was with all of her siblings except for my uncle who had gone to the partisans. And they had had forged papers made. And the last set of papers made for the youngest daughter, the youngest uh, uh, sibling, she was only nine. And so the papers weren't done as well because they were made a little later on by a different person. And so the Germans looked at her and said, well, these are fake papers. 
and my mother started arguing with them and they pushed my mom down and eventually they shot her right in front of my mother and her other siblings. So she was the only one who didn't survive. My father's family, none of them survived. My, the closest living relative that he had uh, after the war was a second cousin who immigrated to Israel. And uh, the only, uh, my mother actually was a second cousin of my father as well. They grew up in the same town. And uh, the story went that when they came back to Budzinov after liberation, they, they actually walked all the way from wherever they were. My father was down outside of uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau in a labor camp making bullets for the Germans. He was young. When the war broke out, he was 17. And, you know, so he was a good worker, and that's what kept him alive. The rest of his family was all were all killed in Auschwitz. My grandparents were all killed in Treblinka. And that was 1942. They were taken out of the ghetto and transported to Treblinka and killed. Uh, any specific events that uh, that you care to share aside from what we just uh, mentioned? Well, I, my father used to tell a story that uh, kind of speaks to his uh, street smarts. You know, he ended up the highest grade of education he had was seventh grade. Um, in, in Polish school. So he never really had a formal education, but he tells a story about how when he was, when they closed the ammunition factory where he was working, they just kicked everybody out. They said, go get out of here. So they got out and they started walking and it was that big winter snow. That was the March where a lot of people froze kind of thing. And he was like starving to begin with. So he kept walking, walking, walking. They got to this tiny little town and they, he sees a Polish person uh, has a pig that he's got by, with a rope on his neck, and he kills the pig and is starting to make the meat of the pig over an open fire. So my father goes up to him and says, please, please, can I have a piece of this meat? And the, farmers, the Polish farmer says, go kill one for yourself. And my father says, I can't kill one. I've never killed anything, you know. And the guy says, well, don't bother me. It's your problem, not mine. So he keeps walking, and he sees a guy looting a store, walking out with hands full of vodka bottles. And his coat had vodka bottles hanging out of both pockets. So my dad looks at him, and he says, if I run up and pull one of those vodka bottles out of his coat pocket, he can't do anything because otherwise he'd drop all the other bottles of vodka he's holding. So that's what he did. He, he got the one bottle, came back, got the other bottle, and then bartered for food because the vodka was not important to him. But So he bartered for food, and that's how he ate as he made his way back to uh, Budzinov to see whoever else had survived the Holocaust. That was a pact that all the people in the village had made amongst themselves, saying, whoever lives, come back here and we will see what we can do from here on in. So how many Jews lived in that town? In that town, there was about 45 Jews. Uh, I think like 10 families, 10, 11 families. Um, and there were Polish people that lived, and uh, most of it peacefully all those years. My dad said the only non-peaceful things was when he was in the Polish school, the Polish kids would bully him and all the other Jewish kids because they had to wear a yarmulke 
which they wore. They kept telling him to take it off, but he didn't want to take it off. So that became an issue. Um, his speech was different than the Polish kids. That became an issue. Um, and they knew he was different. So they just picked on him and he hated going to school, but had no choice. So where actually were they liberated? Well, my father was liberated outside of, as I said, outside of Auschwitz. Right. And my mother came out of the forest. She had spent the whole four years hiding in the forest, going from farmhouse to farmhouse. And uh, some farmers would, you know, give her a uh, place to sleep in the barn. And she would do chores for them to compensate for the fact that they were hiding them out. Because those people were really righteous people to do that because they were risking their own lives to help a Jew at that time. And then uh, when they came back to this little town, they saw each other and uh, two or three other people came back and they waited about three, four more days and they realized that no one else is coming back. So my father in his romantic way says to my mother, he says, we don't have anybody else. Why don't we just get married? And my mother says, get married? And he says, yeah, well, let's go get married and we'll start a family, we'll become a, a husband and wife. So when they got to uh, uh, for Germany, because the uh, that part of Poland was being controlled by the Russians, and they knew that they would rather go to a place where the American army was taking care of people, so they went from Budzenov to uh, Germany by train, and uh, they got married in 1946, March of 1946, they got married. And you were born? I was born in October 1948. So a year and a half later. Any memories of being in Germany? No, no memories at all. I mean, I was when we when they immigrated out of Germany to Canada, uh, they were on a boat in, in January of 1949. They were on a boat crossing the ocean. And my mother says I was sick for the whole three weeks on that thing. Seasick. She would feed me you know, breastfeed me, and uh, I would throw it up. And then she'd give me more, and I would just throw it up. They slept, you know, they were in steerage. They just had, they slept on the floor, basically. Uh, they had a little basket for which I could sleep in. And they ended up going from uh, Germany to St. John, New Brunswick, which is where the boat came in. And then from there, they got on a two or three trains, they said, to get to Montreal, because that's where they had some cousins who were living who had promised that they would help them get settled. And so do you have any brothers and sisters? I have a brother who's uh, five years younger than I am. And he was born in Montreal uh, in 1954. So you arrive in Montreal, Canada. Right. And what was it like you know, becoming a, a Canadian citizen. It was an interesting thing. I, uh, this is a sidebar, so to speak. When I became a Canadian citizen, a naturalized citizen, I was, I was already uh, almost six years old because uh, you have to have five years within the country, and my parents had to become citizens before I could become a citizen. So they had, they had gotten citizenship papers, but I was part of a group of Holocaust survivors, children, who were naturalized before this judge at the same time. And so it made the press. And Queen Elizabeth happened to be in Montreal at that time. So she handed me my citizenship certificate. I have a picture that's uh, from the newspaper uh, showing that. So that was pretty 
pretty proud of that for a while. Uh, and that was the only interesting part of, uh, you know, getting, uh, becoming a citizen. When I was really young, I mean, I have no hard, hardly any memories of being like, you know, a two or three year old kid. I think my earliest memories were probably when I was four. Uh, I used to love, we had a, we lived in a, in a, uh, apartment and we lived on the second floor and we had a balcony that overlooked the street. And my uncle, who lived also in Montreal, my mother's brother, who was the partisan who, who had actually helped us come to Montreal, uh, he loved cars. And in the 1950s, every car, every year was different. It wasn't like today where all the cars, you could see the Chevys and the Fords. And so I used to sit out there on a chair and start to learn which one was the Fords, which were the Chevys, which were the Dodges, that kind of stuff. And then every September, they would all change. New new models came out. So I, I, I used to like that a lot. Uh, I remember going to, um, there were a lot of parks not far from our house. And we would meet some on Sundays most of the time because my dad worked. Well, he didn't work on Saturday. He worked on Monday through Friday. But on Sundays, everybody would meet in this big park off of a street called Park Avenue, which still exists, that park. And I was there uh, later on in my life when I went to college. But uh, you, they'd have little soccer games for the kids would be kicking the ball around. There was a duck pond that you'd go up and, you know, we would spend, we'd pack a picnic lunch, spend the afternoon on a nice day uh, doing that. And all these people that my parents, that were distant cousins of my parents, had children the same age as mine, kind of. So we had a camaraderie going on, kids to play with, kids to be comfortable with. I went to Yiddish school. Um, uh, from age three to age six. And then after that, I went to, uh, regular, per, uh, elementary school. What kind of work did, uh, your parents do? Well, my mother was a housewife. She never worked. She was home raising myself and my brother and, uh, cooking and cleaning and doing all that stuff. My father had learned in, um, in the DP camp. He, some of his family were into clothing alterations and so on and so forth. So, but there they taught you a trade and he chose to be taught how to be a tailor. So he was a tailor, came there, went to work at a suit factory that made men's suits. And all he did was put lapels on. It was like a production line. And, you know, he used to put lapels on and they, he would be, get done. Somebody drop another jacket on there that had the buttonholes cut. No buttons on there, but the sleeves were attached, but then the lapels were not. So that was his. And he realized he was working faster than most of the other people in the factory. So he goes to the boss, uh, this is about a year after he started, saying, I'm not making enough money. And the boss says, well, I can't, I'm paying you, you know, by the piece, piecework. And he says, well, that would be good, but I want to do something that takes more time that I can move along and I don't have to wait for the next person to give me the lapels. So he started doing the sleeves, which is a bigger job. And then he made more money doing that. And gradually he got to the point where he was pretty much the most highly paid person in that business. But even then he realized that that was not going to be a uh, living that he would like to do on a permanent basis. So uh, in 1957, we went and immigrated to Cleveland, to Cleveland, Ohio, United States. 
uh, because he had an opportunity to go into a business there, uh, a dry cleaning store, and he would become the tailor for the dry cleaning store. And he actually went in partners with my mother's brother. So it's his brother-in-law. So they decided they would pick up shop and move to Cleveland. And uh, that's what they did. And then he was in the dry cleaning business until he retired. You can now listen, subscribe, rate, send a contact form, or leave a voice message at the yiddishpodcast.com. That's right. You can ask a question or just say hello, and we may use it on an episode of Kishmir in Yiddish. Just remember, theyiddishpodcast.com, and tell your friends about Shloyma. He is a good guy. We hope to see you soon at the Yiddish Podcast. Dot com.